0: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. With your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes.
1: Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus, episode 659. This week, we welcome IAQ pioneer, Don Fugler, formerly with CMHC, the Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation. And still helping work towards better IEQ in many ways we'll talk about as we go through the show here. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They are the reason we can continue doing the show, and also want to welcome on as our new marquee sponsor, First On-Site, who will also continue sponsoring afterthoughts.iaqradio.com. Our marquee sponsor is first on-Site at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, Science.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org, Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com, TSI Inc., TSI.com, Sunbelt Rentals, SunbeltRentals.com, April Air, AprilAire.com, Healthy Indoors Magazine, HealthyIndoors.com.
0: And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to C Zlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm glad to report that Jack Springston from Atlas Technical in New York City was first to identify death from pleural mesothelioma as what actors Paul Gleason and Steve McQueen had in common. The IQ radio trivia question for today, March 25th, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IQ investigations at tsi.com. Here's today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Name the American who patented a method for counting and sizing microscopic particles suspended in a fluid. Back to you, Joe.
1: Okay. Don Fugler spent 25 years conducting research projects for the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation in the areas of residential energy use, ventilation, and indoor air quality. Between 1985 and 2010, he managed over 100 research projects. And since 2011, his consulting work has addressed indoor air quality and energy issues for federal departments, non government organizations, and individuals. He also helped to initiate the ROCIS, R-O-C-I-S dot org program, the low cost monitoring project through program design and development of the monitoring process participants would follow. Welcome back to IAQ Radio Don.
2: Thanks Joe. Good to be here.
1: It's great to have you back. I I I couldn't believe it was 12 years when I looked up uh when we last had you. Yeah. Uh, it's Just good we're both still
2: Yeah.
1: Good thing we're both still hanging in there. I'm, I'm glad to see <laughs> that. <laughs> Don, let's let's start a little bit. I'd like to go back and and talk about some of your early work um but first, let's talk a little bit about how you got started in the IEQ industry.
2: Um, well, I, I graduated as a mechanical engineer in 73. And then I, um, I took about 10 years off to look at other things, uh, which included working at a youth hostel, working with children, um, tree planting, that sort of thing. Um, but in the early 80s, um, I asked a friend of mine if uh, if he knew of anyone who was looking for workers in construction or uh, design of uh, solar housing, which was uh, the, the big name at the time. And uh, he said, well, he was doing a project for CMHC. They were testing a bunch of 40 energy efficient houses in the West End of Ottawa, and he needed some help for a month. And... Um, I'd like to uh, work on that and so that was my introduction to blower doors and um, uh, pressure testing and gas testing. Now this, uh, this is uh, in the before section I'm building a dome in a youth hostel in Wawa Ontario. Um, we were just passing through and I helped to top it off and then drove off that that evening. <laughs> Anyhow, um, so uh, that was a it was a really really good project because we were exploring things that, uh, um, that hadn't really been settled. Um, so we we're measuring using gas tech tubes and dragger tubes. And um, those are meant for industrial settings. And we are trying to make them sensitive enough to, to look for NOx in, in a residential setting or carbon monoxide, these sort of things. Um, we we're also measuring radon or radon daughters at the time uh, so the offspring of radon, um, humidity, um, uh, we did uh, air change testing with uh, tracer gas, SF6 tracer gas, and also with the um, perfluorocarbon tracers from Brookhaven. So we had all sorts, we didn't know what we would find. It was, uh, the field was so new at that time. What they wanted to establish, what CMHC wanted to establish is if you had energy efficient houses, would it lead to a decrease in indoor air quality? Um, we didn't really have a baseline of indoor air quality. So these houses with uh, lots and lots of data, we were there over two years on a regular basis. We just we just uh, established for them what made sense, uh, where the outliers were, what to worry about. Uh, for instance, we found that <clears throat> in the radon testing, so these are new suburban houses on a standard suburban street in Western Ottawa. Like one house would be high, the next house would be low, the next house would be average, the next house would be low, the f- fifth house would be high. That sort of variation that ranged in, in radon on houses built at the same time on what would be apparently the same geology. And we didn't even, uh, we we didn't we hadn't tested enough to, to recognize that pattern or lack of pattern. So it was all very instructive at the time. Um, So we had to establish procedures and how to test. Uh, We had to establish reporting. We had to uh, look at how our data, for instance, on air tightness fit in with the emerging data on air tightness in the early 80s. Um, We were improving equipment. Um, So a very fertile um, research project.
1: Were these homes, they they all had basements or or no?
2: Yeah, they're all all basement houses. Most Canadian houses have basements. And these were fairly big Canadian, um, you know, uh, suburban houses. So three or four bedrooms, but generous in scope. And basements were very big. They all had um, gas furnaces, almost all had gas furnaces. And they were experimenting with a furnace room. That would somehow isolate the furnace and the chimney from the rest of the house, and we got into some of the early experiments on whether you could backdraft that furnace chimney. They were, you know, a bee vent chimney. Whether you could backdraft that due to use of fans in the house. That sort of, uh, um, ex- you know, exploration.
1: This, these were energy efficient homes back in '85. What was considered energy efficient?
2: Um, a certain amount of insulation, probably more than stand, more than code, even though there was no code insulation in Canada at the time, and, <laughs> um, and um, uh, an effort to establish air tightness, because the, the builder knew that all these houses were going to be tested, they made a special effort to make them airtight. So they probably were, they're probably in the order of two to three air changes at 50 which was tight for that era.
1: And would these be standard uh, fiberglass bat insulation or were they using some other type of insulation? Uh, nothing it fancy by- on
2: the insulation, no. So it'd be a fiberglass bat. Um, they might've been using the compressed fiberglass two inch product on the exterior wall to 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 you know to give that extra oomph. I forget, oh. some of them were two by six construction.
1: So that was my next question. And what, what did you find about like, Co co two.
2: Um, we didn't uh, we didn't find a lot of co. There was a unlike for instance the testing that I've done at uh, Raucus uh, lately um, where there's no smokers within the sample. Back then um, in the early eighties there was a percentage of the households that did have um you know heavy smokers in them, and uh, we were actually getting carbon monoxide readings just from the amount of cigarette smoke. So in the, you know, 10, 15, 20 PPM range. Um, wow. they, they, the houses were pretty well ventilated. We weren't finding high levels of uh, carbon dioxide to speak of there.
1: And let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the people who early on influenced your career. Uh, tell us about who you worked with and, and uh, how they influenced your work.
2: Okay, well, um, a couple of things here. Um, the company that hired me to do this field work was called Retrospectors. And they were also the people who were building the RetroTech door, blower door, which is still uh, you know, a major blower door manufacturer. So we had people like uh, Sebastian Moffat and Brendan Reed, who's done a lot of training in the States and Colin Gensch who's run RetroTech for decades. Um, myself and uh, Robinson, a, a number of others, all in this, this house in downtown Ottawa, building blower doors in the main floor during the research on the second floor. So it was a very fertile group um, that did a lot of energy and indoor air quality work over the next several decades. When I started work with CMHC, my mentor and my boss at the time was Jim White. And um, one of the things he said to me that, uh, that really stuck was when he's talking about doing research or approaching a problem, he says, first you get the sign right. Is it a positive or negative effect? And you think, okay, well, that's pretty obvious, except for instance, when I was testing an air inlet to a fireplace and I found no air coming in until I turned my pitot tube around the other way and it was air exiting. So it was actually a negative, it's an air inlet. It was called an air inlet, but air doesn't respond to, a label. So it was going out. So is it a positive effect or a negative effect? Next thing is order of magnitude. Is this a very big effect or is it relatively minor? And then the third thing is the first significant figure. So is it like a 20% effect or 40% effect? And I've used that for any number of things, you know, even car mechanics, you know, for the rest of my life. Is this positive, negative? Is it huge or is it can you ignore it you know and if you can't ignore it how big is it sort of thing so that's uh yeah jim was pretty inspirational that way he uh he was a systems engineer he worked on the uh the canada arm for the space center and stuff so right, he's the, the shuttle right yeah yeah he uh he had his fingers in a lot of pots that way
1: and I I'd suggest if anybody uh, wants to learn a little more, we had a couple of great shows with Jim. Uh, we'll put them in the blog as well. Uh, who else did you work with in those early years that kind of stood out to you?
2: Well, I, I actually, in various conferences, ran into, you know, half the people in the indoor air quality field uh, that have made a name for themselves. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, David Miller, uh, Bill Rose, um Andy personally, all these people that you get on your show, uh, Joe Steebrook. I remember he and I arguing over my duct tape when I was doing a blower door test on the house he was designing. And he's going, <laughs> he's going, just tape all that stuff up. I said, Joe, this tape costs me 10 bucks. And he says, well, write it off. I said, no, I, I'm a private individual. I can't write it off. Anyhow, so we had, <laughs> we had uh, you know, all the basic people, one person who I'd like to mention uh, because I'm, partly because I'm still working with her is uh, Linda Wiginton because she was running the affordable comfort conferences and back in the uh, late eighties through the two thousands. And, uh, they were, uh, they were great. I was down every year doing presentations and listening to other people's presentations. And I met, I met the whole world. I met Terry Brennan there who you um, did a show with a couple months ago, you know, Jim Fitzgerald, all these people who were, uh, just wonderful people to be around, and very, very imaginative and innovative. You know, I, I found the affordable comfort conferences, plus maybe some of the time at ASHRAE or uh, Air and Waste Management Association. You know, it's, you meet, you meet these people, and you go, wow, these people, they think in such unusual ways. It's it was uh, very stimulating.
1: When you, I'm curious. When you this is the apple, I want to go back to Apple Hill for a moment. When when you checked the air tightness of those thirty to forty homes, and this was before we had real good details on how to air, you know, air seal and so on, did they end up being fairly close?
2: Yeah, yeah, we saw. So I we were checking air tightness over each season to see if it varied seasonally because we didn't we didn't know right. Now we know there's not a great deal of variation, but back then we were trying to establish that. I was traveling around with a blower door with a six foot nozzle back then. And the the nozzle was mounted on top of my car. I'd be going down the road and people would be looking at me. And sometimes if there were, uh, you know, laborers in the house or craftsmen, tradesmen, they'd look and they'd say, I won't be able to breathe when you turn that sucker on, you know, and I'd go, (laughs) it's okay. So we, um, they were fairly airtight houses. I think we got down, like I said, as low as maybe two, uh, two air changes at fifty. And what we found, because we were corresponding the airtightness with, um, with the air change rate tests, the tracer gas tests. So we found um, in the shoulder seasons, like uh, which in Ottawa would be April, May, and maybe October, that when you don't have, if you're on a day without a lot of wind, and you don't have a lot of temperature difference, the air change rate in the house can go to almost zero. We're and it's hard to measure when it gets that low because uh, because things don't change. So we are seeing air change rates like uh, 0.05, 0.03, something like that. Um, hmm. So if you're expecting natural ventilation to take out the uh, pollutants that you're generating, or creating in your house and you have an air change rate of 0.05 it's not gonna happen. You know, you you need some mechanical ventilation to make that work.
0: If you have a follow-up, yeah, I I do just a quick one. You know, one of the things he said, Don, that I think was was pretty amazing was the reasoning that you were checking these houses is someone came up with this concept to try to figure out whether making these houses energy efficient was going to cause indoor air quality problems it seems that in the united states no one had that consideration was all so i just wondered (laughs) whose idea was if you knew
2: uh i'd probably go back to jim white but it um It uh, could have been any number of the people working, Peter Russell, Jim White, uh, and um, people from National Research Council, for instance, which was just up the road from CMHC, so um, Gus Handegord, you know, that sort of thing. They had a lot of uh, building scientists who, before that, was even established as a profession or a a specialty, and um, they, they had good ideas, and one of them suggested it, for sure.
1: I want to go on to another. Um, When we had David Miller on, we talked about some of the earlier research that was prompted by precedents uh, such as retrofit projects in Canada using urea formaldehyde. And and I wonder if you could maybe go over a little bit of that information with us for listeners.
2: Yeah, we um, we had what was called the CHIP program, Canadian Home Insulation Program. In the early 80s, so it was trying to save energy on, based on one of the energy crises. And because people didn't know too much about houses, about building science, you know, everyone thought that there's nothing complicated about houses, you know, you, you just do this and that. Um, and it was, you know, we've been, esta- as building scientists, we've been establishing that that's the wrong perception, for, you know, because, because houses are far more complicated than they seem. So anyhow, they did the chip program. They were just firing insulation in everywhere. Now, for instance, uh, one of my neighbors at the time here in Ottawa was a market gardener, and uh, in his house he would start all his seedlings. Mm. Uh, he had to, uh, you know, grow lamps and stuff, and this was uh, legitimate stuff. It was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so then he had his uh, house insulated under the chip program, and. And everything went moldy over the the winter spring because he was dumping gallons of water into watering these plants every day. And those gallons of water would come out, but his house was now tighter and had a lower air change rate. The humidity went up to 60, 80% in the house and and mold developed. Um, So it wasn't only things like that. It was also people were using technologies that they hadn't perfected. And urea formaldehyde foam insulation, which is a spray foam that's assembled on site with two components, you get some people coming in who are a little cavalier on on doing it correctly. Um, And when that happened, you would have a lot of free formaldehyde coming off and you could smell it, but it also would lead to health problems. So so the government got into big problems. uh, They had to react because a bunch of the homeowners who had their houses retrofitted under the CHIP program were getting sick and, um, and were blaming it on the work done by the CHIP program. So the building scientists went in and said, okay, what do we got here? We we're measuring formaldehyde, we we're measuring humidity. There was mold happening on, on surfaces and that's how we get people like David Miller getting in. He was working with Agriculture Canada and they were the experts in mold because mold grows on agricultural products. So they bring them in and say, what's this mold? And is it, you know, is it harmful, that sort of thing. So a lot of it evolved from those, those early projects. Um, now, for instance, in the CHIP program, they decided in houses, some houses they would take all the formaldehyde out at great cost. Mm. Um, some they would leave in and just increase the ventilation rate with uh, heat recovery ventilators, which were just being again started to be built at that time, so they were developing these devices and installation practices and putting it into code. Um, so, a, a very lots of changes happening at the time, and uh, these big programs prompted problems, and the problems prompted the research, uh, which has persisted, you know, and we've learned a lot through through dealing with these problems for sure
1: you know when we were talking the other day i was i had a project years ago in greenville south carolina um which was a double brick wall with a, a little gap in between and someone had come in and sprayed foam in between those two brick walls basically and and i thought that was the most unusual thing i'd ever seen but you said it was fairly common and, and, and that's similar to what we we're just talking about, isn't it?
2: Yeah, very much so. Um, if you have uh, these, the downtown houses from the early 1900s, double wire brick and you don't really have space behind the, um, the plaster and lath, uh, you can't integrate enough, for, uh, you know, insulation into that space. So they would insulate the gap between the two uh, layers of brick, and that led to all sorts of problems, Um, partly uh, structural, because um, that gap is critical for the drying, for drainage and drying. And when you took away those drainage paths and the ability to dry, then um, you've got a lot of brick deterioration, mortar deterioration. So, um, and and actually, when you spray foamed in there, you weren't going to get it out short of taking a whole wire to brick off, you know, and that's really, really expensive. Well,
1: and and not only that, I found that when they did that type of uh, retrofit, whatever, they oftentimes couldn't get the foam everywhere. So you would have spots where there was no foam and spots where there was foam and the spots where there was no foam in the winter would get cold and you'd get condensation on those areas. And it was, it was quite a nightmare.
2: That's right. And um, again, an, a technology that was, uh, that was uh, in its um, birth at that time was the uh, thermographic scanning, right? And you could see, when you brought thermographic cameras in, you could see the spots that have been missed. But I don't know how you're going to get to blow foam in there, you know, uh, retroactively. So.
1: That was a tough one. I had to go to to Dr. Joe for an answer on that one. I couldn't figure it out. All I know is I I always have told people, if you don't know what's going on with that wall, put a hole in it and find out, you know? So we had a little jackhammer. We're jackhammering the brick out of the wall. We came and saw this foam. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? (laughs) So, So it's still happening out there, Don, unfortunately. What other mistakes were made, you know, back in the early 70s, mid 70s, we had that energy crisis and the Arab oil embargo and all that, we tightened up a lot of homes. What other problems did that lead to that you find in your research?
2: Well, one of the big research areas I had in the 80s was um, combustion spillage, um, which basically means a chimney that's not functioning properly. Uh, So if you tighten up a home, And you have exhaust devices in the home, especially kitchen fans, which tend to be larger than the bathroom fans, um, then the chimney will not evacuate all the products of combustion and you could get carbon monoxide poisoning or higher levels of NOx and stuff in the house. This picture is... uh, Unfortunately, a very good comparison of how you age over 40 years. But the, um, <laughs> this is uh, the oil furnace in my basement. And this picture was for a magazine article on spillage. And I was using um, a smoke pencil to show that the air was coming out of the furnace instead of going in. Now we faked that picture by running my blower door in the back door. So, and depressurizing the house. But it, 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 I mean, it effectively was showing spillage Um, Just an aside on those smoke pencils, the ones we were using back then were fuming sulfuric acid. And I don't know if you remember the decorating patterns in the 80s, but there were a lot of sheer curtains around. And so when you're checking windows with a smoke pencil, you had to be very, very careful around shears. Because I can tell you from experience that fuming sulfuric acid and shears do not go together well.
1: Interesting. And neither does fit testing without a respirator on and sulfuric acid. <laughs> it was some rough days. so they got a little better products. Now, let's, Sean, put that article up, if you would. I think we have the article here, actually, Don.
2: Yeah, that's one of the articles I wrote. So basically, when you tighten the house, you made it more difficult for chimneys to vent in a lot of cases. And so um, we did a lot of experimentation on uh, whether chimneys were spilling, how long they were spilling, whether that created indoor air quality problems. We, um, in cooperation with uh, researchers from Canada and NRC, we, uh, we developed uh, chimney simulation programs uh, that we did for gas and oil furnaces and even wood stoves eventually. Um, we developed uh, chimney spillage monitors. Um, and we looked into... Uh, codes and standards for for gas and oil appliances. How to avoid these sort of things. All this information and these testing methods got into um, standards like CSA, and and it also uh, I found that uh, that American weatherization crews picked it up. Uh, I guess the second year I was at Affordable Comfort, they they had a someone. Introducing each speaker, and uh, it was Jim Fitzgerald introducing me, and he said, "Okay, this is Don Fugler. I uh, I listened to Don Fugler last year, and it changed my life. So shut up, sit down, and listen." And he sat down. Whoa! <laughs> what am I going to do with that? And, uh, <laughs> because uh, well, Jim and and everyone else integrated combustion testing, spillage testing chimney safety test into their air tightening. And it was uh, was really gratifying to see that spread right through the American industry. And then then it worked its way back up into Canada because they said, oh, it's, uh, you know, everyone's doing it down there and this is how they're doing it. And so it just came back with an American stamp on it.
1: You know, even though this research was done many years ago, this still happens today. I mean, it's still applicable. We're lucky
2: that um, the gas industry, at least, has moved on to, um, you know, sealed or powered venting. So uh, a lot of the problems that we used to have with um, water heaters and furnaces, just with a chimney, um, you know, they're so they're quite rare in Canada. They may be more common down in the states, but they're the ones most at risk. Uh, what we've done with fireplaces and wood stoves up in Canada we basically said there's no way you can guess what a spillage limit is on a wood stove or a fireplace so as long as they're protected by a smoke alarm and a co alarm uh, we're not going to worry about them the alarm will go off it'll tell you that something's happening
1: interesting okay that's that's one approach huh Let's go to halftime, John. We'll be back with Don Fugler. This is a, a great uh, IEQ Pioneers segment. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at FirstOnSite.com. Our association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, a Healthier World, AIHA.org, ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI, Science.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org, the IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same day results with no rush fee, AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation, count on us. ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. rentals.com april air healthy air healthy home april dot and healthy indoors magazine a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers healthy all right let's jump right back into it dawn there was a a project on it was called Eastern Canada drywall failure. There were moisture studies, mold investigations, and a bunch of hygrometers. Why don't you go over that for our audience?
2: Okay. The um, again, that was it was a building failure syndrome that prompted a whole bunch of research. So this was mostly in, in uh, the Maritime provinces, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, PEI, and um, they had um, they had a lot of drywall failure. With uh, high moisture content and mold happening, so they had to discover the roots of why drywall was failing when it didn't before. Um, and I think part of that again was the the house tightening that uh, you know had taken progressively over, you know, several years or decades. Um, but what happened was that they found uh, we, again. So you're having mold investigations there. Is the mold happening? Is it a, a toxic mold? Is it a mold that we should be worried about? Um, how do you design a wall so that it doesn't uh, create a high moisture situation in the drywall? You know, where should the vapor barrier be? So, just to go back to Jim White's, uh, what's the sign? You know, if you put a vapor barrier behind drywall in a northern climate, it will often help out. If you put a vapor barrier behind a wall in Florida, you're going to rot your your whole wall, so it's a positive effect to the most part in Canada. It's a lousy thing to do in Florida, so that's the sign you um, so they had to figure all those things out and uh, we we did a lot of testing down there. there was a, a bunch of research projects. Um, the uh, hygrometer stuff we we were trying to figure out how people could measure relative humidity. I mean, a hygrometer is a relative humidity indicator. Um, and we had, you know, thousand dollar pieces of equipment and we had five or $10 stuff from hardware stores. And we thought, okay, what what's accurate? It's, it's really hard, hard to trust the accuracy because, uh, because you can't find a standard until you start calibrating with salt and water, which is one thing that we do. Um, I was just talking to the raucous people today at an earlier meeting, you can calibrate a hygrometer by putting pure sodium chloride in a saturated solution in a cup and put that in a Ziploc bag and put your hygrometer in and zip it up. And eight hours later, it should read 75%. And that's a, that's one way to, because there are different salts, which will create relative humidities like lithium chloride will calibrate to 9% or 11%. And, Sodium chloride to seventy-five percent. Anyhow, so we uh, uh, one of the uh, the things we were doing was trying to figure out how to how to specify hygrometers, how you should use them, and um, uh, you know how to make sure they're accurate. So um, I think you have a picture there of me with. Do. I was
1: just um, texting John yeah. to put it up. There we go.
2: hundred hygrometers on the wall. That's it, and one in CMHC. <laughs> and, uh, we were doing uh, 400 basements in uh, in the Ottawa area, and this was a really great project because we um, I was using two female recent graduate engineers, and they would go knocking on doors, cold calls, and say, "We'd love to look at your basement. We'll give you this free hygrometer for 10 minutes in your basement." And because they were women, it was less threatening if you were running men around in the night, sort of thing. Um, <laughs> And we were able to get 400 houses of data on moisture conditions, temperatures, uh, relative humidity, and the presence of mold or or water problems in 400 houses for ten thousand dollars. I thought it was like the cheapest project I had ever done. Um, wow!
1: What did you find? I'm just curious. Like how many? What percent of the homes had a moisture problem?
2: Um, in the Ottawa area, there was. I think it's about 30 to 40% of the houses had indications of moisture problems in the past and maybe not a current problem. Um, We found a lot of uh, houses running humidifiers that had never been serviced. The ones, uh, the drum humidifiers on your furnace. Yep. And you have to clean them on a regular basis and no one did. So it got to the point where these two women who who became, uh, one of them is still working for CMHC, would be uh, when they opened the front door, they'd say, "Oh, this is a moldy house," or <laughs> you know, they could tell. They got trained, calibrated noses, yep. and uh, they would go downstairs and open the drum humidifier and stick their hands in and come out with a handful of guck and say, "This, this is what you're breathing," and just in hopes of uh, getting them to clean their humidifiers a little more accurately. So,
1: I, when you, when you say um, drywall failure, is that just the presence of mold or were there other failure related issues paper coming off uh, swelling
2: yeah well discoloration but also you know your drywall failure when you can poke your finger through the drywall it's not doing it's not very structural any longer
1: that's, that's a failure a there,
2: huh? I used to have a picture on some of my presentations of uh, there was a basement apartment, and it was a, it was a an indoor air quality researcher. It was her apart, her basement, and her parents were living down there, and they had respiratory problems. And if you looked, they had paneling, wood paneling, and the paneling was just rotted at the bottom, and the uh, you know the the quarter round or whatever was just rotted right off, and that's where her parents were living. Their parents with respiratory problems. It was. You, it was a blindness that came from not knowing enough that mold and moisture problems could lead to significant health problems. You know, we just we just didn't know it, or we didn't we weren't aware of it enough.
1: Did Did you get much pushback from the government when when you started to promote that idea? I mean, I, I know people in the states here did get pushback. I mean, our our government's the biggest landlord in the country, so you're telling the biggest landlord maybe in Canada, hey. You're causing people health problems with this mold and moisture.
2: Um, The government at that time uh, was pretty interested in resolving the problem. I have had pushback um, later on in the 2000s. We were looking at uh, the issue of vermiculite and asbestos in vermiculite and whether that asbestos in, say, attic insulation was working its way down into the house. So... um, we had uh, five or 10 contracts signed right across the country for people to do sampling and uh, data analysis. And, um, and my vice president called me up and said, "Mm, it's it's all over. I said, what do you mean it's all over? He says, cancel all those contracts. I said, what's going on? He says, "Uh, we've been told we're not doing this research. So yeah, the, the government at that time was not interested in being the government where in power when people found out that a lot of their houses were at risk. So they just squelched the research.
1: Interesting. Was there ever any research done on that? That's a great question. Does vermiculite put in as attic insulation become airborne in someone's home?
2: I don't know. I was wanting to find that answer and we were uh, not able to do the research. I, my guess is probably not, but that's just a, that's just a guess.
1: And I would think it would vary by house too, whether you know how well insulated the house was, how airtight it was. Yeah, uh, under just,
2: negative pressure, blah blah blah. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it all—they all will have effects. So um, that we were doing okay. fifty to a hundred houses, or we plan to do fifty to a hundred houses. We thought we would get that range of of field testing that would give us a feeling for. How big this problem was, but as it stands now, because there is uh, there is no certainty about that. If you have a house in Canada with vermiculite, you lose ten thousand bucks on selling the house because people will say, "No, I got to get this fully uh, asbestos remediated. That's going to cost me ten thousand bucks," and so uh, you got to knock that off the selling price. And you know we didn't do that research. The research was in the order of a hundred thousand bucks, but that's only 10 houses have lost, you know, uh, 10 houses at 10,000 bucks a pop, you know, it it would have been a much better societal outcome to find out if it is a problem or if it's not a problem.
0: Hey, Don, but aren't there different sources of vermiculite, different cities, different mines? And I, th- I thought it varied, you know, kind of like talc, some has more in it than others. And some vermiculite has more in it than others. I thought in the States, Joe, some place in Montana or whatever, where they were. Yeah, Libby, Montana. Stuff. Libby, Libby God can talk about that. <laughs> right, yeah, right, it's, right.
2: Uh, well, and when all that came out back, Libby, Montana, they knew they had uh, asbestos in it, but they thought that if you kept the asbestos to under 1%, it wouldn't be enough to cause a problem. So Presumably, they were checking and they were shipping at less than 1%. But for instance, how people use vermiculite, one of the reasons that Canadians got um, interested in vermiculite because First Nations housing, Indian housing in uh, parts of Canada had, had vermiculite put into the attic. And uh, because these houses tend to be um, or can be overpopulated, like too many people for the house, The kids were playing up in the attic. So there's one family with four children who eventually got a mesothelioma from playing Mm. in the attic as kids. They got it as adults. You know, in the 40s, they started dying because of this, and they put it together to the vermiculite. But it is true that vermiculite from different parts of the world can be uh, pretty well asbestos-free. And so we were trying to develop testing procedures, like what would you do, what sort of test, how big a sample, where would you take the sample from, what are the testing agencies that could do a good job of finding out whether you had actual um, asbestos in there.
1: And this is you guys getting starting to get ready to do this sampling that got shut down, I guess.
2: That's right. Yeah, we were uh, setting up the testing protocol and and we were standing there with no masks on and watching these guys in uh, full
1: I thought there was another research, a furnace filter research. I don't know when that was done, but that's become popular again. I wonder if you could go through what you were looking at and what you found.
2: Well, when the advent of... um, like 3M Filtrate furnace filters, right? They're uh, they're fairly high MERV filters, but they're only an inch um, in thickness, so you can stick them in a in a standard slot. We were we were wondering if uh, if they worked as well as a fat filter. We were wondering if uh, having a filter, a good um, furnace filter, made a difference in house uh, particle counts. Um, and so we got into some research uh, with a consultant named Dara Bowser in uh, southwestern Ontario, and, and that research just mushroomed. We uh, we got into furnace filters, and of course what we found was um, some worked and some didn't, and uh, um, some, they had, for instance, they had HEPA filters, but HEPAs are fairly resistant, so they put a bypass on it, so they build ducting out, put the HEPA and put it back in. So if you had a HEPA filter, which is almost a 100% particle removal, but you only took 50% of the flow, it was just as good as a 50% filter, which is a lot cheaper than a HEPA. Um, Mm -hmm. So, and we also found that of course that you, if you don't run your furnace fan pretty well continuously, or at least say half an hour, an hour of every hour, you're not gonna be removing enough uh, particles to make a big difference. Like over the course of a year, a furnace fan might be running, especially if you have air conditioning in the summer, it might be running 20% of the time. And that wasn't enough to make a huge difference in the particle counts in the houses that we measured.
1: But well, today, we're going to talk about this in a little bit. You're you're doing the same kind of thing with Roxas.
2: We are. Yeah, Roxas has uh, been looking at that. And uh, um, they do a, a retrofit for houses that have... Um, force air systems and they bring in our the local pittsburgh expert who's really really good at analyzing uh like how a furnace behaves you know whether it's within the uh, range of specifications you know what the heat rise is and the pressures and he pretty well condemns or not condemns but criticizes every ducting system ever installed in pittsburgh and uh and they put uh they change the the drop that goes to the furnace and they put in a four-inch filter and then they put in a, a high efficiency fan, um, fan motor. And uh when you have like a MERV 13 filter and you're running your furnace fan continuously, you can knock off 90% of the particles in your house uh on a you know, consistently. And we've seen that in house after house.
1: And we've done some shows with Linda Wiggington on, on the Roxas program. So if you get a chance, folks, check out some of our past shows with Linda. Uh, we're going to talk more about Roxas in a minute, but before we do, there was another, um, vacuum cleaner testing. I I didn't get to talk to you much about this, but I saw it in the notes. I'm like, oh, and then there's a a text I have to ask you about. But tell me a little bit about vacuum cleaner testing.
2: Okay. So we we were wondering, you know, there's the pig pen effect. When you're measuring particles, like suddenly you notice all these effects, like the kid who had asthma and was sleeping under a duvet, and every time the, the kid rolled over in bed at night, particles spike because they never wash the duvet because it's a pain in the butt to wash a feather duvet. So so these things, again, stuff that we didn't expect. So we, um, we got into, as you walk across the room, you raise dust. Now, do you raise dust more on a carpeted floor or on a bare floor? And if so, how can you do cleaning? Um, and so we started doing these cleaning experiments in the stainless steel room in Saskatchewan, I think it was. We um, laying down, you know, dirt that was uh, standardized dirt with a standardized dirt layer downer and we're doing all this testing. So on a bare floor, we are finding that, uh, you know, a, a simple pass with a vacuum cleaner, standard vacuum would, would pick up 90, 98% of the dust that's been laid down because we, oh. we it before and after. And a broom would pick up about 92%. But if you put that dust in a carpet and did the regular vacuuming, you'd only get about 40% of the dust and the 60% would stay in the carpet. If you want to stay there and vacuum the same square yard for a minute or a minute and a half, you could get up to 90%, but no one does that. And I, I would say that we would be talking at a conference and I'd say, okay, you guys time me for a minute. I'm just gonna stand here and run my vacuum cleaner back and forth, back and forth over the same square meter. Tell me who's going to do that? No one's going to do that. Usually it was a bunch of guys anyhow, so they didn't do it anyhow. But they, um, so uh, we played with vacuum tears. But we did things like running Hepa vax versus the world's cheapest vax. We did uh, central vacs that were vented to outside, and whereas the Hepas and the central vax vented to outside had lower amounts of particles in that room than the cheap vax. They had a certain amount of particles, and we, it was because you're agitating a carpet and you're raising the dust off the carpet. Now, the curious thing is, in the 20 years since, um, we've been doing work at Raucas and we're looking at these peaks that happen. We say to the uh, participants, So, how did that peak happen? And they said, Oh, I was vacuuming at the time. And we say, Well, okay. And then we go to someone else and we say, well, do you ever vacuum they go yeah I vacuum here and here and, and there's no peaks at all. So what they've done is the vacuum cleaner manufacturers have been able to deal with the head design, which is far more efficient and picks up more than the, the fairly elementary stuff that we were looking at 20 years ago. So if I did that same set of tests in the stainless steel room, I would bet that there would be very little dust raised from the actual vacuuming process. And that happened to catch the majority of the stuff, like it wouldn't blow through like you would with a cheap bag.
0: Very interesting. Cliff? No, I was just going to say on vacuums, uh, some years ago, I thought this was an ingenious uh, modification of vacuum cleaners. A company in the States uh, came up with this light. They had a red light and a green light that was on there, and it worked off of sound. So that uh, while the vacuum was picking up, it would be like a red light. And then when the sound would go down or it wasn't picking anything, it would go green. So the customer actually knew, you know, when it was clean, when it wasn't. And I thought it was a great idea. I just don't know that they do it anymore, but uh, it was pretty cool.
2: Yeah, uh, indicators are really cool. I mean, I, that's another thing we've learned from the rockus project, which is basically giving... People who don't who aren't necessarily scientists a whole bunch of instruments and seeing if they want to control their indoor air quality and uh when people see the particle counts inside their house they go oh i should be cooking different oh i should close the window oh i should do this i should do that oh i'm going to replace my old vacuum cleaner because the vacuum cleaner i use now creates a big dust cloud so um if you give them the information and they can see it in their own home, rather than just generalized, uh, you know, press release. Yeah. It's, it's uh, far better. And they, they act on it.
1: I've got a text question that really caught my attention. This is a little pet peeve of mine. Ask Don about his work on household dust and betting contribution.
2: Betting contribution. Uh, You know, I tried to find this again. Hoover, the vacuum cleaner manufacturer, used to publish every five or 10 years a description of the dust collected in their bags. And they did this from the early 1900s. And uh, so um, back in the early 1900s, it was all natural products. And um, by the time you get into the 70s or 80s, which is, I guess, the last time I saw the data, you had a lot more plastics in there, you know, the acrylic uh, carpets, um, plastic waste, uh, um, that sort of thing. Um, I don't know too much about uh, like the dust from bedding. Are you talking about what's in bedding or or the what's given off by bedding?
1: I don't know. It was a text, so it's, it's tough for me to... Uh, okay, uh, if it's in
2: reference too, to that uh, asthmatic kid, um, what was happening there was just... Uh, settled dust, which happens in every house, but it's like settled dust in an area that is never cleaned or vacuumed, right? So it builds up and when it builds up, um, then when you disturb it, you get a significant peak. Uh, We found in our research when we were doing molds in basements research, we found a pretty good indicator of whether a house is going to be moldy was whether it is cleanable. You know, if the floor surface is pretty bare and people make the effort, you don't get a lot of accumulation. But if you have uh, hoarded things or, or lots and lots of boxes in the basement and you can't work your way around that, you're basically creating havens for mold and, and moisture problems. So it's uh, it's almost you, you're looking for the neater householder if you want to uh, see, you know, really good results.
1: I think beds are greatly overlooked on IAQ investigations. People just don't, they, they just walk right by. And sometimes I suspect that's the biggest problem for a lot of people. They haven't gotten a new mattress in 20 years. And, you know, you're going to have a buildup of all kinds of stuff in there. But anyway, let's you go have, to the roundup.
2: You also go ahead. The, uh, the fire retardants in the mattresses, which are people are finding in their bodies with, um, mm-hmm. but um but i i used to like to say so you know those dust bunnies under your bed do you get those dust bunnies anywhere else and people go no I don't, I don't know why bunnies like to lodge under my bed and it's because you're there for the longest time you've got seven eight hours if you're lucky and those are skin shedding and hair shedding and they accumulate into dust bunnies and um And because the bed is, it's not uh, disturbed, under the bed's not disturbed to any great degree, then they accumulate. So that's, it's just an occupancy thing why you get dust bunnies under your bed. It's not like it attracts them or anything.
1: Allergy docs do not ignore beds. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, David. All right, let's go to the roundup, John. roundup is brought to you by april air providing healthy humidity ventilation and air purity solutions for new and existing homes april air healthy air healthy home at april com. all
0: right let's go cliff do you have any final questions for i had one that was on the list that i thought was important i I think this is probably a carryover from uh david miller show but uh if you could comment on the effect of occupants have on building failure
2: yeah um okay this wasn't a cmhc study i'm going to quote but it was uh ontario research foundation or ortech later so what they did we were doing work as were a number of other people in buildings for the hypersensitive to find low emission building products so you could build a house a new house that had you know, it was safe for people who had hypersensitivity. And so we built several houses um, in an area and um, like three of them were with these uh, low emission building products and, um, you know, two or three controls with the standard construction. And when you went in and measured them right after construction, there was a huge difference in the amount of volatile organic compounds in uh, in the standard versus the low emission one. But when people moved in two months later you couldn 't tell the differences between those two sets of houses, because what people brought in the products they used in the house, the furniture they brought in, the emissions from the new furniture they brought in, completely overwhelmed the contribution from the building materials mm. so that was uh, that was very illuminating and made me think, okay, so why would you go to the extra ten or twenty thousand dollars to to build a house if you're going to ignore it in the course of living. The other thing is we used to say that if you get someone who's diligent, I like to say sort of retired engineers, because they were the people who asked a lot of questions when I was working. I could not tell a retired engineer because very measured and, um, you know, a rational response. Anyhow, if you get someone like that, they can make even a bad house work. But you can put some people in even the best house, like well-designed, well-constructed, and they'll destroy it. Because uh, if, if the worst occupants will destroy the best house.
1: Don, I, there was, I got a couple of things, but I want to get to this one. What, what's, what do you see as the future of IEQ? Like what topics we aren't talking about that much now will be front and center in the future?
2: Okay, um, well, there's, there's a couple of things here. I, I'm betting that submicron particles, so particles less than 0.1 microns, um, are going to be uh, important. Um, we, we weren't able to measure them. Um, and, you know, back when I started measuring particles, the health effects that were attributed to, they said, oh, Particles lower than you know, five microns or two microns or something, they're so small, you just breathe them in, you breathe them out, they don't stay there. And now we know that's completely untrue and the standards are set to 2.5 microns, you know, the uh, PM 2.5. Now, when we get down into the sub micron particles, they're, now that we can measure them and we're getting more data, we're probably gonna find this whole bunch of health effects with submicron particles that we didn't know until we could actually measure them. Um, another thing, which uh, I, I gather you guys have uh, looked at, is uh, electromagnetic fields. Um, I I'd, I haven't seen enough evidence to say that EMF in a house is going to be dangerous at, at the levels we generally see in houses. I don't know enough about health and exposure to fields. But um, I know we are more and more exposed to EMF, and especially when we get into electric cars. Um, hmm. and, and it may start to become uh, more of a problem and more of a research area in the future.
1: Great point. That's very interesting. Don. before we go, um, is there anything we missed or you want to add? I know we didn't talk as much about Rossus as, as maybe uh, we planned. But um, I know it's a great program. Maybe you want to mention that one more time, but anything else that we missed that uh, you'd like to add?
2: Um, well, there's, uh, there's a lot that went by, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I would like to touch on um, the soil gas research we did, <clears throat> and I'll try and be brief. Uh, CMHC uh, also did mortgage insurance, and uh, we got – 80 houses back on mortgage insurance uh, because um, they were built on a dump and beside a landfill Mm -hmm. and the the houses started blowing up and stuff across the other side of the landfill. So, um, so people said, forget it. We don't want this because we did the mortgage insurance. We got the houses. So my uh, boss at the time said, Don, if you want to do some blower door testing, I've got 80 empty houses before we rip them down. And I said, great. So I went down and checked them out. And um, I said, I think you could do subslab ventilation on these houses like they do with radon and you could probably save them. And and we did that and people moved in and they've been running ever since. And we <laughs> did a whole field of research based on houses affected by hazardous lands, how to test, uh, how the tests work, whether you should do environmental site assessments. like Just because the, the boss said, hey, we got these empty houses, you want to test them. We did... 10 or 15 years of research on soil gases and uh you know explosive gases and methane and and avoiding all these problems like leaking underground storage tanks we had it all so it's the funny way that research evolves and how research fields evolve and how when you start something you say holy cow this means that this this is a problem or this means that we should be looking at that and uh it's it's really neat uh how you can follow a thread in research and 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 find things that we didn't even know existed as a problem
1: how did the sub slab depressurization work for moisture did you measure that
2: uh, not specifically these uh, these houses were peculiar because they're row houses and you know eight in a row three in a row five in a row sort of thing and we had centralized systems uh s- Sucking up, and we didn't have the houses weren't occupied before, which would have an effect on the moisture. So, um, I know other people have looked at that, and it generally, um, sub slab ventilation generally lowers the amount of moisture coming to a slab. But I, it wasn't uh, the focus of our installation. We were trying to avoid them blowing up, so or people sick, So,
1: uh, you had bigger issues to worry about. <laughs> yeah, that's Don, final thoughts on um, Roxas? Maybe you could uh, mention how th- that program has just been uh, a source of tremendous information.
2: Yeah, we've done over 400 houses, um, and like I said, uh, people are reacting well to it. We are measuring carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, radon, and particles. Lots of particle work. Um, carbon dioxide is sort of interesting. Uh, you know, there's a thousand ppm limit uh, or guideline. And most people are under that most of the time. Uh, sometimes we find a house with five or 6,000 PPM. Like we tell them that they have to change, change their house. Um, sometimes we find bedrooms, it goes up to 2000 at night. And we say, have you tried opening your bedroom door? I know you lose a bit of privacy but even just something as simple as opening a bedroom door will lower bed, master bedroom carbon dioxide down to a thousand or something like that. Um, the particle stuff has been amazing. And uh, it's probably worth an hour of conversation on itself. But what we have found is that good filtration, either through the furnace HVAC system with a proper setup or through standalone air cleaners can knock the particle levels down in a house um, easily 80, 90%. Uh, and we found uh, the, the particle levels in these houses, again, all with non, non-smokers, the best house was twenty times lower than the, the worst house. Sure. You know that's that's it's a big number, and and everyone is surprised at the amount of particles they create cooking. Like if you drop one drop of oil on a burner, you can get you know, you know a spike of thirty thousand over a, a hundred or two hundred baseline. It will go up to thirty thousand. This huge spike. So. So we're learning a lot about cooking. We're learning about how effective vented range hoods are. Uh, we're learning things as as we mentioned about vacuum cleaners and uh, house behavior and and how people change their life a little bit to to make uh, their the air in their houses easier for everyone to breathe.
1: You know, you mentioned air cleaners. They don't have to be expensive. HEPA air cleaners either. I know you were working with just uh, fans with the uh, what MERV thirteen tape to it. Now we've got these Corsi Rosenthal boxes out there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, are you doing any testing with those?
2: Yeah, we, we are still doing that. Um, uh, Linda Wigginton uh, and the crew at Raucus uh, lends those out to participants, and and we found even a simple box fan with a thir- MERV thirteen tape to it makes a significant difference in a house with uh, higher particles. Like it, it just knocks it right down. It may not be as good, or the airflow may not be as high as the one, the Corsi-Rosenthal one with four filters, but it's, um, it takes up a lot less room. Um, so uh, we, like, we like filtration. What we found is a lot of people, when you give them air filters or some level of filtration, after a certain time, especially if they don't have the uh the particle sensor anymore they lose interest or they forget to change the filter or they shut it off so these things only work when they're on and uh and one way of ensuring that they're on is to be monitoring the particles particles in your house
1: that's a great point um there was one other thing it just kind of went whoop, uh, right past me oh on, on that uh On the rocks, where are you headed next with this? I know you've been working on the return air and filtration. And, uh, oh, the other thing I wanted to mention is I don't think a lot of people realize why it happened in Pittsburgh and what it stands for. Reducing outdoor contaminants in indoor spaces. Pittsburgh has some of the worst air in the country. And so they're not just worried about what's generated inside our houses. We're also worried about what's coming from outside and putting that fan in the window with the filter on it, how effective is that?
2: Yeah, we're going to play with that more. Um, for instance, there are a lot of people, yeah, Pittsburgh is in the highest 10% of of uh, cities in the States, even though it's a lot better than it used to be. Much. Uh, but uh, for instance, many, many houses in Pittsburgh, and, and it's old housing stock that we're dealing with. Um, you know, it's rare that we get a house newer than 2000. So up to 100 years old or 120 years old, whatever. Um, they don't have uh, air conditioning or they haven't gone to the... I mean, the house is relatively inefficient. Air conditioning can be very expensive. So people open windows. And uh, and when you open windows, you basically have outdoor air in your house. And if the outdoor air is high in particles, you're breathing that too. So what we're suggesting and and have experimented to a degree is you take one of these box fans with the MERV 13 filter, you put it in your window facing in, and then you close off the rest of the window with plastic or something like that. So there's no gap, no recirculation. And you turn that on overnight. And so you will be getting cooling air coming in. It will be um, sort of 95, 97% uh of particles. And so you're getting air into your bedroom that's cooling, that's refreshing, and that's fairly clear particles and see if that would be a better alternative than just opening windows. And it could be relatively inexpensive and not very expensive to run.
1: Interesting stuff, Don. Cliff, anything before we go?
0: No, I'm good, John.
1: Don Fugler, thank you so much. Um, we really appreciate having you join us as one of the IEQ pioneers and uh, look forward to continued discussions as time goes on.
2: Great. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure. All right.
1: This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Don Fugler. I also want to talk to, uh, thank uh, John. You got to have faith that the controls, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Uh, Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners and audience and uh, sponsors and our new marquee sponsor, First On Site. Check out the afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, where we'll continue the discussion after the show. And uh, next week, we're going to do a flashback show. But in two weeks, we'll be back with, uh, we've got Elliot Gall from uh, Portland State University, Dr. Gall. We'll be talking more about particles and particle mitigation and uh, some of his other research. So come back and join us um, next week with the flashback. And then two weeks from now, back live on the next episode of IAQ Radio
0: Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel, saying thanks for listening.